Welcome to Book to Book, a literary podcast brought to you by Faber and Faber Publishers. My name is George Miller, and my guest in this program is William Atkins. I recently met William at the Faber offices to talk to him about his new book, The Immeasurable World, Journeys in Desert Places, praised by writer Philip Hoare for bringing apparently barren places to life in a brilliant, revelatory way. In this podcast, we also ask our guests to talk about a book that's inspired them. As you'll hear, William hasn't chosen one of those swaggering early 20th century male explorer types who charged off into desert wastes in search of glory, but a book that is infinitely richer, stranger and more prescient. We began our conversation with William's own book, which is a quest for the ultimate meaning of the desert and what we seek there. Deserts have for millennia drawn humans to them. Wars have been fought over them, latterly nuclear weapons tested in them. They've been seen as lawless places, places of temptation. Today, they may be the site of anarchic festivals or a danger zone to be crossed in search of a better life. Every encounter with them is a test, a challenge. The worst of desert fates, William writes, is to come endlessly back and back again upon your own footprints. So when we met, I began by asking William, what sort of traveller are you? Would he call himself intrepid? Somebody described me recently online as an explorer, and I nearly spat my coffee out, because this book in a way is a reaction against that tradition of particularly British travel writing. I suppose I would describe myself first and foremost as someone who writes, someone who was curious about this word desert, about these places called deserts. And so the starting point was the word, on the one hand, curiosity. So no, not an adventurer, not an explorer, not particularly intrepid, slightly a physical coward. But undoubtedly a traveller, because, I mean, you could conceive of a, a book about deserts which mainly smelt of the library, and yours doesn't. Because Although you have, you've clearly been in the library, and what you find in the library is fascinating and a very important part of it. But I suppose what I'm saying is you could have minimised your exposure to the desert and still produced a really interesting book, but you, you have fully embraced that as a traveller. What I was curious to do was, well... Two things. The first, again, to come back to the word desert, that word that's so heavily freighted with metaphor and symbol, and to discover the real desert that underlies all that kind of cultural baggage. We talk about, for example, cultural deserts or literary deserts. And so I wanted to have the, the sand under my feet, as it were, but I didn't want to travel alone, so to speak. And so my company very often, apart from the people who were showing me how to be in the desert without getting lost or dying, were people who had been there before, sometimes indigenous people, sometimes travel writers, perhaps biblical pilgrims from the 15th century, perhaps the desert fathers of the second and third century, perhaps people like Wilfred. Thesiger, um, British travellers and travel writers who have 
been to these places before me. And so the the travel element, the the experiential element is very important. Um, but I am reluctant, as you'll gather, to overplay the intrepidness of what I'm doing, partly because I'm uneasy with the tradition in which travel writing often finds itself, a particularly British tradition that implicates travel writing in a sort of colonial, post-colonial imperialist project. As you've already alluded to, you have some kind of relationship and it's a it's a it's perhaps quite a questioning difficult relationship with those early earlier generations of as you say especially british writers who went into the desert you describe them early on in the book as shabby irascible not always likable bunch and yet the opening of the book we find you reading them with a sense of urgency so what was it what was it you were sort of trying to derive from them or, or ingest from them one of the starting points for the book was St. Anthony and the Desert Fathers. And I'm interested to what extent, as you say, particularly British travellers, and particularly in the deserts of the Middle East, can be seen as inheritors of some of the monastic tendencies of the Desert Fathers. The Desert Fathers were the second and third century monastics in the deserts of Egypt, really the the first Christian monastics, the 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 founders of Benedictinism and Cistercianism. And in the book, I spend some time with present-day Coptic monks in the Egyptian desert. I was interested in understanding what drew those men and, and women to the deserts in the second and third century. Partly, it was flight from religious suppression in Alexandria under the Romans, but also they were drawn there for very particular reasons. One of those reasons was, well, we think of the deserts sometimes as places where we, we find ourselves, tranquil spaces for meditation. But the Desert Fathers went to the desert as if to a kind of front line, to a war zone, because the desert was the domain of the devil. You went there partly to do battle with the devil, with Satan and his minions. We see this famously depicted in numerous paintings of the so-called temptations of St. Anthony by Velazquez and Bosch and various others. And so, yes, it was a battleground on the one hand, but I think perhaps what the explorers you've mentioned, Thesiger, for example, Bertram Thomas in the empty quarter of um, the Arabian Peninsula, were seeking that that they had in common with the Desert Fathers was also something slightly different. And I think we can think about the desert as a kind of uh, a concrete symbol of transcendence. The Desert Fathers had this word paneremos. It's a very important word to me and an important word in this book. Paneremos is the uttermost desert, the centre of the desert, the place where the desert is most powerfully asserted, if you like. French travellers in the Sahara in the 19th century had a, a corresponding term, dessert absolu, um, again, the, the absolute desert, the centre most, most desolate, deserted 
part of the desert. There's a wonderful term that the extraordinary American writer Annie Dillard refers to in one of her essays, the pole of maximum inaccessibility. And so these three ideas, this place of absolutes, this place where an idea of eternity is asserted, in a way, that's the quest of this book. But I think also it was the quest of the Desert Fathers, insofar as we can presume to know what their quest was. And it was what some of the desert explorers, the British desert explorers, in particularly on the Arabian Peninsula, I think were seeking. As you know, part of the um, purpose of this podcast is to explore the affinities that writers feel with other writers and with other books. And when we asked you to choose a book, you didn't choose one of these early 20th century male macho explorers who strode off across the, the desert. You chose Rebecca West, probably best known as a novelist, but you chose a, a book which really, I suppose, defies easy categorization. Maybe I can get you to, to introduce the book. In fact, perhaps the first thing to say about it, since it's sitting here on the desk, is that it's, um, let me see, it's 1,178 pages in length. It's pretty weighty. It doesn't fit through the letterbox. It, uh, it doesn't, yeah. Um, published in 1941 as two volumes, originally conceived by West as what she described as a snap book. She expected it to be a kind of portrait, a brief portrait of Yugoslavia. It's subtitled A Journey Through Yugoslavia. I mean, that subtitle suggests that this might be a kind of conventional travelogue. And as you say, it's uncategorizable. And it has elements of, yes, of travelogue. It has huge elements of history. It's really a book about the relationship between Yugoslav Balkan history and the present day, the present day being, in West's case, um, the years immediately preceding the Second World War. She made three visits with the expectation of producing this snap book, uh, 1936, 1937, 1938. And Black Lamb and Grey Falcon ostensibly is an account of a single journey, despite the fact that she made three journeys with her husband, largely by train, through Yugoslavia. I've been thinking about it, this book, a lot, well, this week, this week, partly in preparation for this discussion, but partly because of its kind of terrifying prescience. West was, was in Yugoslavia in the years immediately preceding the Second World War and was conscious of an ever-darkening cloud brewing over Europe. I'd like to read a bit, actually. Is this sure, okay yeah, that would, be, that would be great. Uh, this is from the end of the end of the book. Only part of us is sane, she writes. Only part of us loves pleasure and the longer day of happiness, wants to live to our 90s and die in peace in a house that we built that shall shelter those who come after us. The other half of us is nearly mad. It prefers the disagreeable to the agreeable loves pain in its dark and night despair and wants to die in a catastrophe that will set back life to its beginnings and leave nothing of our house save its blackened foundations. I've been rereading 
this in in the week where the USA has uh, removed itself from the United Nations Human Rights Convention. In a week where we've seen governments in Eastern Europe espouse the kind of far-right rhetoric that we haven't heard for 50 years, and in a week when the USA's historical viciousness towards migrants crossing its southern border has reached what may or may not be its sort of lowest ebb uh, in the form of children being imprisoned in concentration camps in Texas. I suppose this book, um, Black Lamb and Grey Falcon, is prescient, yes, in terms of what it has to say about the impending political violence that swept across, was about to sweep, sweep across Europe when West was in Yugoslavia, and which she anticipated with such kind of clear eyes. But it also seems prescient for our own moments, um, which is partly why I, I read that, that piece just now. I'm going to read another bit. Uh, yeah, again, this is from the prologue. I had to admit that I quite simply and flatly knew nothing at all about the southeastern corner of Europe, and since there proceeds steadily from that place a stream of events which are a source of danger to me, which indeed for four years threatened my safety and during that time deprived me for ever of many benefits, that is to say, I know nothing of my own destiny, that is a calamity. And in a way, maybe that, that draws me back to my own impulses in in traveling certainly it makes me uh, interrogate them in retrospect do you remember william how and when you first encountered it and, and did it initially make such an impression or was it a, a more sort of drip feed kind of thing i encountered it as i encountered most of the important books in my life in my 20s in a period of several years extraordinarily intense probably rather unhealthy reading. Um, I wasn't someone who, who, who was an avid, I uh, wasn't the classic kind of avid childhood reader curled up under a table with um, Harry Potter or whatever. Um, I really came to, came to books in my early 20s. This was one of several big books that I encountered and was excited by not because of their monolithic nature or their length. This is half a million words but because of their sensibility. Think of other big books that, that have been important to me. And I, I mean big in, in terms of weight. You know, this is like half a stone or something. Something like George Perec's uh, Life of Users Manual or The Anatomy of Melancholy by um, Robert Burton or something, I mean, even Underworld by Delilo. Those kind of big bricks of books. What has been important to me about books like this is not their extent, is not the kind of the magnitude of the achievement of the writer in terms of putting a half million words of coherent prose on the page. It's to do with the sensibility. And so the, and the kind of display of a kind of complex, persuasive, ethical position, as well as being exquisitely brilliantly written, of course. And we were talking before this discussion about the kind of the necessity of reading from page one to page 1300 or whatever, whatever it is in the case of um, 
West's book. And I don't think I've ever done that. I don't think I've ever sat down and read all of those pages in succession. And I don't think it's a, it's a book that, that requires that. But the pleasure I and the stimulation books like this have brought me is not to do with uh, that kind of grand achievement of sitting down for f- a month and, and plowing through the thing consecutively, page after page after page, but very often sitting down year after year after year and discovering new riches and being inspired anew by the kind of aesthetic and literary sensibility, but also the ingenuity of the writing and the sense of sheer literary energy that these books generate. One of the words, as I was dipping in, that sprang out at me was palimpsest. It seems to me that that when she looks at a, when she arrives in a new city, or when she's reading the notion of the palimpsest, the notion of of peoples and civilizations and conflicts and generations and dynasties, all of those layers are mm. something that she's that she's really acutely conscious of. And and part of the great attraction of the book is though that she she manages to to interweave these things so one minute you're you're in the well the here and now which was the 1930s and another you're you're back in the middle ages and she's making some connection be- between the two the um the canongate edition um of black lamb and gray falcon has a very useful introduction by um jeff dyer he quotes her at some length and i think what's one of the things that's so powerful about this book is the way it elaborates these connections between the past very often the deep deep past and the present day which is to say that the events immediately preceding the second world war have their roots not in recent history but very often in deep 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 history and she's very effective at tracing those roots part of the reason the book's so long i think is her recognition that the history of any place is of infinite complexity and depth that um, to write about even the smallest corner of a field could require a hundred books of a thousand plus pages and so part of the the effect of the kind of weightiness and size of this book is to evoke a, a sense of the kind of infinite complexity of of Yugoslavia but also of any place. It's a good lesson, I think, if you're a, someone who writes about place and is a gets called a travel writer. It reminds you that um, all you're ever doing is is scratching the surface in the, in, in, in the shallowest way and reminds you to approach the project, whatever the project might be, with a certain sort of um, humility. I mentioned uh, Jeff Dyer's introduction in this, this, um, this paragraph that he, he um, quotes. And it's about um, a 14th century ruler of Yugoslavia. In the 49th year of his life, at a village so obscure that it is not now to be identified, he died in great pain, as if he had been poisoned. Because of his death, many disagreeable things happened. For example, we sat in Pristina, our elbows on a tablecloth stained brown and puce, with chicken drumsticks on our plates, meagre as sparrow bones, and there came towards us a man and a woman, and the woman was carrying on her back the better part of a plough. That connection between 
between the lives and the circumstances of individuals, uh, yes, and historical historical events. I mean, in in among all the all the history and, and the big the- themes, I really responded to the vignettes that she comes up with, which really seemed to me, you know, to be as as vivid as anything in any novel. I mean, here here they are. They're just. I think they're in a suburb of Zagreb. The, the train has pulled uh, up there, and she, she writes, I leaned out of the window. Rain was falling heavily, and the mud shone between the railway tracks. An elderly man, his thin body clad in a tight-fitting, flimsy overcoat, trotted along beside the train, crying softly, Anna! 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 He held an open umbrella, not over himself, but at arm's length. He had not brought it for himself, but for the beloved woman he was calling. He did not lose hope when he found her nowhere in all the long train, but turned and trotted all the way back, calling still with anxious sweetness, Anna, Anna, Anna. When the train steamed out, he was trotting along it for the third time, holding his umbrella still further away from him. A ray of light from an electric standard shone on his white hair, on the dome of his umbrella, which was streaked with several rents, and on the strong spears of the driving rain. I was among people I could understand. And I just thought that that's the kind of thing which you can imagine, you know, might might almost get cut in the edit or might not even go into the notebook. You know, the train might pull out and it might just evaporate. And yet she's captured it. Mm-hmm. And it's it's a sort of moment of transition. You feel she's sort of she because she's she's had all these sort of Germans in the carriage. And, you know, they, they've, they've turned out to be not quite as agreeable as perhaps they first at first at first regard they seemed. And I just thought that was a, that was a sort of magical, magical moment because we, we don't know who the man is. We don't know who Anna is. We don't know why Anna isn't there. And the train goes. It kind of reflects some part of the experience of travel, which is just, you know, it sort of makes it rich, doesn't it? Because everything is not there in order to exemplify some historical point. There are historical points, of course. There's a bigger picture, but also there's the, the real detail in the canvas, too. The, the detail is and actually, almost you, almost any page you dip into has something wonderful and vivid. Um, I mean, there are pages and pages of quite dense history which you need to plough through. But yes, it's studied with these rather novelistic gems. That kind of novelistic tendency of hers highlights one of those kind of abiding questions of of travel writing, which is the dialogue between the fictional and the real how you manage time how you manage the experience of being in a place in such a way that it that you are able to create a coherent narrative and so again i suppose i i feel that she is attached to facts but not at the expense of a a rich and uh, engaging portrait of a place and its and its people. I wonder if she she would actually see a connection between, for example, the incident that 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 relatively small moment that you've just that she describes and which you've just read, and larger historical events. And I think her at the heart of the book, in fact, is the idea that the everyday everyday experience of us as individuals exists as part of a a wider kind of historical reality. Um, And so there are connections to be made between these apparently grand political revolutions and the the opportunities and possibilities of experience that are open to us.
there was a there's a moment which I really wanted to ask you about where you're in the Australian desert and you're in a zone where nuclear te- or near where nuclear tests have been conducted and you're really struck by seeing that life here is going on plant and animal life is going on you write life is going on as if humankind had never been and then you say it shocks me less today i really wanted to get you to unpack that perception and then the then the subsequent reaction to it because it seemed to me that, that, that there was something quite important happening there and then mm. on my part it's uh, about that shift in interpretation and understanding of of the desert landscape and so this idea that we have that deserts are void places are, are are dead places and lifeless places which is very quickly undermined as soon as you spend any time in deserts that they are they can be sparse and denuded but they're very rarely lifeless however if you go to for example maralinga uh, in the great victoria desert in australia where we the british tested their nuclear bombs in the 50s and 60s what you find is a different kind of desert surrounding the various ground zeros where the um the nuclear bombs were detonated are these disks of lifelessness so whereas the that part of the great victoria desert is actually quite a rich place in terms of vegetation so uh, mallee and mulga trees acacia and eucalyptus trees growing out of this very intensely red earth that australia is so famous for and yet within these disks of contamination of radioactive contamination almost nothing grows so it's simply sand and rock and so within the natural desert you have this man-made desert and there's an echo in the book of those places in my journey to Kazakhstan to the Aral Sea which was once the fourth largest inland sea in the world and uh, which due to the um, decision of the Soviet Union to be self-sufficient in cotton was effectively drained to the extent that it was um destroyed and today you can walk on the dry bed of the one-time Aral Sea and it's a man-made desert um they call it the Aral Kum the Aral Sands and so it's a desert that was created in the 1960s and whereas as i said if you're in a, a natural desert you feel like for all the kind of sparsity you feel like you're in a living place and the only times during the course of researching this book where i felt like i was in a truly dead place were on the one hand in maralinga at ground zero where the ground is covered in this stuff called trinitite which is um hardened melted fused sand basically glass created at the moment of the explosions that place on the one hand and the aral sea on the other and you can be walking on the the bed of the one time aral sea nothing at all visible as far as the eye can see apart from this kind of damp grey ash like substance and it feels like a deathly place like a a place of despair but also a warning and i think one of the things i took away from these experiences 
was a sense of the deserts and even to some extent the natural desert as a kind of warning to us about um, about ecological improvidence but not only ecological um, particularly thinking about what was done at Maralinga and what that presaged and what was done in other deserts as well uh, in terms of nuclear testing in, in Kazakhstan again in Nevada New Mexico in the Sahara and in, in India uh, and China for that matter there's a American writer called John C. Van Dyke, who plays a part in this book, who in 1901 published a book called The Desert. And it was really the first the first book to recognize the deserts of the American West as places that were not merely a kind of encumbrance to capital and to the growth of the American nation, but were also in their own right uh, of aesthetic value. Um, were beautiful places, were again kind of symbols of, 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 of transcendence. And at the end of his book, published over a hundred years ago now, he says he's in the desert and he looks at, he looks at the moon and uh, he asks himself, is, is this desert, is, is this the future of our, our world? And his answer is yes. I know right back at the beginning, you said you weren't an explorer and I I fully take take that on board. But one of your early 20th century explorers wrote later in his career, I think I have done with desert exploration for good. And I wondered after having immersed yourself in so many deserts over several years, do you feel like you are you have done with desert exploration? I suppose the the impulse that made me want to take these journeys, well, it, this brings us back to to the questions we were discussing at the beginning to do with the word desert and trying to remove that kind of carapace of symbolism and metaphor from from that word and to try and understand what these places might actually be and what the experience of being in them might might be like and i've scratched the surface of those experiences and yet i feel like i've perhaps answered answered the question that I set out to answer. I'm done with them for now. If another question arises that necessitates going to a, an arid place, then that will draw me back. I was talking to William Atkins about his new book, The Immeasurable World, Journeys in Desert Places, which is available now in hardback. For more information, visit faber.co.uk. And until next time, thank you very much for listening, and goodbye.